Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm Sterling Fox, and today, Trevor Bodkin from Hero Work Victoria talks about new measures to reduce substance abuse in the BC construction industry. Pollster Mario Canseco has new results of a national survey on violence in hockey. And Ravi Callan, BC's Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery and Innovation, has the details on the COVID-19 Closure Relief Grant now accepting applications. So let's get started. People working in the construction industry in our province will benefit from life-saving harm reduction training in the workplace, substance use support groups, and information on local community resources thanks to new provincial funding. The Vancouver Island Construction Association has received a provincial grant to expand its tailgate toolkit project, which is a harm reduction program to prevent toxic drug poisoning in BC's construction industry. Here to talk about it this morning is Trevor Botkin. Mr. Botkin is the executive director and project manager with Hero Work Victoria, who has a career uh, spanning 25 years in the construction industry. Mr. Botkin, Trevor, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Sterling. How are you today? I'm great, thanks, Trevor. Good to be with you, uh, and uh, thanks very much for jumping in. Tell us a little bit about your 25-year career in, in the BC construction industry and how you came to be intersecting with uh, with toxic substances. Yeah, wow. You know, uh, it's been a, a, a wonderful career I've had. Um, it continues uh, uh, in my current position at Eurowork, of course. Um, I started uh, when I was 19 years old uh, as a... Um, a journeyman, or sorry, as a, an apprentice carpenter, it came up, uh, uh, you know, through the ranks, mm-hmm. became a foreman, a superintendent, and and have uh, been a business owner, uh, actually, in, in Western Canada. Um, yeah, you know what? It's a tough job. I, I love the job. I love the industry. I love the people. That's what, uh, that, that's why I found a home uh, in the business, but um, along with, uh, but the hard work came comes a certain lifestyle uh, uh, for some of us, um, not everyone, but uh, but a lot of us. And um, you know, I uh, you know what went from in one stage of my life, uh, uh, you know, spending time with the guys after work, blowing off some steam. Sure. Um, at, at at another point, started to transition into into a um, a problem that I couldn't get a handle on, and uh, and so I've uh, I've. I've dealt with addiction in my life uh, in several different ways. Uh, once, uh, you know, from the perspective of a of an addict myself, now in recovery, I've um, I've dealt with it as a super uh, supervisor, a foreman, uh, leading others who I could see were obviously struggling, mm-hmm. um, not really having access to resources or any idea of where to send them, or even myself uh, when I when I started to really see that my life was being taken over. And as an employer, uh, you know, not knowing what to do, where to send people, or what uh, what guidance to give them to to get to get better. Fascinating stuff, Trevor. I think the thing that a lot of people early on a Sunday morning are kind of surprised by is the fact that it is so prevalent in the construction industry. Where did it start with you as a recreational hanging out with the guys thing, or mm-hmm. were you injured on the job and uh, started getting involved with opiates or something for pain management? Because that does happen in construction yeah. and a lot of other industries doesn't it it really does and it's um you know i've seen both sides of it my story leans harder towards the uh you know i picked it up as as a way of uh of of blowing off some steam but um uh and connection but uh but definitely injury is is part of my past as well mm-hmm. i wouldn't 
you know, I don't, I, I've seen that end of it and I've been offered those drugs and, and, uh, and actually have, have, you know, they're part of the story, but they didn't, you know, the injuries there, the, for me, the injuries weren't there first, uh, I'll put it that way. Um, but I've seen, I've seen that side of it too, where, you know, like it is a tough job and, um, opiates are surprised for, uh, they're surprisingly, uh, prescribed for, for injuries that you wouldn't, uh, you, you know, I think would surprise some. I'm quoting now the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, uh, Sheila Malcolmson here, quote, the toxic drug crisis continues Mm -hmm. to take lives at a tragic rate. In cases where we know someone worked, nearly 20% of those who died worked in trades, transport, or as equipment operators. Serious, heavy jobs, physical, hard labor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, where you find hard work, you're going to find sore people and, uh, and, and people that have... Uh, you know, look, there's, there's a, there's a million different ways to get injured on a job site, um, in these, in these jobs. And, uh, opioids are, 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 or have been very commonly prescribed sure. for these injuries, uh, injuries over the year. When we look at the toxic drug supply, uh, people often find themselves hooked on the opioids that they're prescribed yes. and then no longer prescribe them and they're turning to the streets or to other, uh, avenues to get that that substance that they're now very uh, um connect or controlled by uh, yeah. attached to and uh i've seen it i've uh, personally uh let people go uh, off my crew uh in 2000 christmas 2016 comes to mind um i unfortunately had to let a young man uh, go and and t- within two weeks uh he is deceased we don't know if it was a, uh, an accidental toxic supply overdose or if it was intentional. The, the situation gets to a point where people start isolating. They're unable to control these things. Yeah. They become destroyed uh, mentally by the, the darkness and the shame and the stigma surrounding these things. They don't know which direction to go. They've quite often been sent home by a supervisor or employer and told, hey, you can't be here. Mm-hmm. Um, and what do you do? Where do you turn as a supervisor um, or an employer? Uh, you know, to a certain extent, our hands are tied. Like we don't, these resources are not commonly available. We don't talk about it on a job site. Right. So when, I'm, when I'm doing my safety orientation on a, on a job site for the first time, my, my, my speech about, uh, about being inebriated, drunk, or high on a job site is if it, you'll, you'll go home and you'll probably be fired. Mm. This is, there was no other information to give. Right. So, so talk to us. the end uh, of the conversation. Yeah, Trevor, ta- tell us a little bit about the Tailgate Toolkit Project. for the, You're on Vancouver Island. The Vancouver mm-hmm. Island Construction Association has this project already, and now they've got some new money to put into it to expand it. What's that yeah. about? It's, is this about bringing resources to individuals who really need them? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And and opening up that conversation rather than it being a five, you know, a two minute blurb on a job site saying that they were, you know, you're out of here. Uh, it's, hey, if you've got a problem, if you think you might have a problem, you need to talk to us. You know, we want to open up that conversation and, and connect you with the resources that you, you could use to, to, to better your situation. Um, you know, you still can't be on a, uh, a job site in less than uh, a safe safe condition. Sure. But Vancouver Island Construction Association has done an amazing job with this. They reached out to me um, to be a part of their advisory panel, um, which I was grateful for. I take it as kind of a gift of my recovery is being able to give back in these ways. 
Um, and I was a small part of that. There was a, there was a team of us that sat down, some of us with shared experience or lived experience, mm-hmm. some of us as employers, some of us as supervisors, and uh, we all sort of uh, put our experience into the middle. From there, Vancouver Island Construction Association, they went out and interviewed uh, uh, a ton of different stakeholders, whether it was employers, whether it was other users or people in recovery, uh, supervisors, and they've put together a package of sort of what to do if uh, not only to further that conversation on the job site level, but inform employers and in superintendents. Because, you know, there's this human, there's this do the right thing type perspective on this, but there's also this um, very real economic oh, sure. um, uh, lesson to be learned. Like, it costs money when you're losing employees. Yeah. We don't have en- enough, enough trades in this province to begin with. So how do we keep people healthy, number one, because it's the right thing to do. Number two, how do we keep them functional and, and safe and, and productive on a job site where they're contributing not only to the, the, the whole of the organization, but to their families and continuing to, to contribute, contribute to the economy? Um, you know, Vancouver Island Construction Association really does deserve the credit for this. They've done a lot of hard work. I was really proud to be a part of it because they asked the right questions and they listened to the right people. And I'm I'm excited to see this this package and this training being rolled out uh, and available to superintendents and, and employers and uh, and workers all across the province. And as you mentioned, Trevor, too, the timing couldn't be better because there's no shortage of work. There's where we are in a, a labor shortage, almost a labor crisis in some industries, construction being one of them. So mm-hmm. in terms of keeping people on the job when they're most needed, what a, what a perfect timing to enhance this program. Thanks for uh, getting up a little early on a Sunday morning to join us and tell us all about it, Trevor. It's fascinating stuff. Absolutely, Sterling. Thank you very much for your time. Indeed. Trevor Botkin joining us from Victoria, where he is the executive director and project manager with Hero Work Victoria. Uh, we've got our pollster, Mario Canseco, about to join us. Two-thirds of Canadians and three out of four Canadian hockey fans believe the game would be better off if headshots were banned. Here to talk more about it is uh, our good friend, Mario Canseco, the Grand Fromage at Research Co. here in Vancouver. Mario, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. Great to be here with you. Good to have you back with us, Mario. Of course, the Canucks are on the road again today. They played uh, in Carolina yesterday morning, our time. They play against Ovechkin in Washington at 11 o'clock this morning, our time. Not doing uh, too well on this road trip, but not, not getting blown out or creamed. It's just being beaten by better teams. But on this particular road trip, the emphasis is on skill and speed. Not a lot of headshots going on. No, it's been a little bit different. I think, you know, there has been a little bit of an evolution of the game, especially if we compare it with the situation that we had, let's say, eight or nine years ago when we were constantly subjected to moments when people had concussions, when we had a lot of fights, when we had a lot of problems going on. So there seems to be a little bit of a change in hockey, and fans would like more to be done about what is happening as far as violence on, on the ice. Okay, and we're starting to see, I think, the, uh, perhaps uh, one of the reasons for that sentiment, Mario, the, the league itself is uh, doing a better job of disciplining those who would step beyond the barriers, and multiple game suspensions for that sort of behavior is now the norm, isn't it? It is. And, you know, one of the things that we wanted to find out in this survey was 
whether there's an appetite for more, but also to allow fans and those who aren't necessarily fans of the NHL um, to have an opportunity to talk about what has been done. And we can go back to the situation that we had when Sedeno Chara hit Max Pacioretty, sure. when we had uh, no other instances of hockey violence uh, that were definitely um, not something that left fans with a with a happy feeling, if you will. Yeah. And we do see that uh, people are... Um, definitely saying that the NHL is doing a better job. 52% of, of uh, Canadians and 76% of fans say that they're doing a good job or a very good job in looking after the safety of their players. So Interesting. This is a big change for, from where we were five or six years ago um, before we had the fines, before we had the, the regulations that we have now in place to deal with hockey violence. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, this also trickles down through the truth to the little players, the little hockey players. And, and some parents right across Canada, not unique to British Columbia at all, Mario, some parents reluctant to let their boys or girls play hockey because of the violence factor as they see it uh, would probably be uh, inclined to go uh, in support of this, uh, this whole uh, improvement of discipline by the big, the, by the professional hockey players, which also trickles down through all of the other leagues? Well, it's definitely something that has been changing, uh, especially when you look at the, at the lower levels. You know, we've had discussions about what to do with body checking. We've had discussions about what to do with headshots. There are several leagues that have done uh, certain changes to their guidelines, particularly when it comes to headshots and, and, and for body checking. But again, you know, we're a federation, right? We have specific areas uh, that have been implemented or cer- certain changes that have been done mm-hmm. uh, in some provinces and not, not in others, depending on the age. Um, it's a slow uh, trickle effect, if you will. But what is interesting now is we didn't have as many people suggesting that the professional game should not be as violent as it is. And that is the kind of thing that changes first and then trickles down to the other levels. So it really remains to be seen what happens. You know, we do see a large appetite for getting rid of headshots. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, fights are a little more contentious. You know, if you're not a fan of the NHL, you're more likely to say, why are they hitting each other? Right. Uh, but fans are sort of split on this. So it's uh, not something where everybody wants to have something done, particularly on fights. But on headshots, definitely, there's an appetite for change. So there, there's the divide right there. Most people, and, and by the way, just in terms of the ban on headshots, Mario, was was it a unanimous across the board, across the country, or were there parts of the country that were more in favor of this? One would think with headshots, it'd be fairly unanimous. It is, you know, and that is also part of what makes this really compelling. We have 80% of Canadians who say that they uh, support banning headshots in uh, hockey at the highest level. Mm -hmm. And the numbers are high across the entire country. BC at 83%, Ontario at 81 Quebec also at 81 The lowest is Alberta at 68 But you still have two-thirds of Albertans saying, um, you know, you're essentially at a moment of the game where you're stopping play from happening. It doesn't have to be as violent as it is. You can always do something that is a little bit different. Um, so there's definitely uh, something that you want to see happening, particularly because we have seen so many players affected by this. We've had stars of the game mm-hmm. uh, who have been sidelined because of concussions, all because of plays that could have been dealt very differently. Indeed. 
Uh, Sidney Crosby being uh, the, the probably the best example. Sid is one concussion away from the end of his career. He's had too many, and the next one will be it. Uh, so one hopes that uh, the uh, that this this ban and this new sentiment with respect to headshots holds. Uh, however, as I mentioned, the great divide it, it occurs between banning headshots and banning fighting. You say, and I think quite accurately, those who aren't hockey fans don't get fighting, let alone want to see it go away. They just don't get it. Hockey fans, on the other hand, what's the sentiment across the country about banning fights in pro hockey, Mario? Well, among those who uh, are fans of the game, uh, there's deep divide. Uh, 49% are opposed to banning fighting from the professional game. 46% support it. When we ask all Canadians, uh, it's a two-to-one margin. 60% who believe that banning, that, that fighting should be banned hmm. in uh, hockey, and 29% who, who don't believe that should be the case. So this is ultimately an issue um, that has to be dealt with very differently uh, because the level of support isn't there. I think if, if the NHL were to say we're going to be banning headshots, you're not going to see an exodus of fans who say, oh, the game is not what it used to be, I'm not going to watch it again. A ban on fights could be very different and could lead to all sorts of crazy situations, such as the emergence of a new league where you actually allow people to fight, Um, partly because we just don't see the same level of support for this. You know, people believe that the headshot is something that is inherently violent and not necessarily something that is helping the game. Mm -hmm. But there is definitely a larger proportion of of, of fans who believe that uh, that fighting should continue. I mean, it's not necessarily regarded as an integral part of the game. Right. But when you, when you have half a fan saying, I wouldn't be happy with this, then it's not something that you can deal with immediately. Interesting stuff. And uh, back to the whole matter of kids in hockey, you did actually touch on that in this survey on headshots and, and fighting and all the rest of it. What did you find from parents? Well, uh, there's certainly a concern from parents about what can happen to their kids if they play this sport. Uh, 20% of Canadians told us they would encourage their kids to avoid playing hockey as a result of violent incidents in the sport. Um, This is not different from what is happening in the United States with pro football. Mm -hmm. We've had a lot of reports about concussions, about problems with uh, blows to the head. CTE. Mm -hmm. CTE, exactly. it's, It's a situation that we really weren't talking about 10 or 20 years ago, and we're starting to see the ramifications of it with players who are now uh, well into their retirement years. And, you know, we've had campaigns in the United States. There's there's a very compelling ad that has been shown in Canada featuring Brett Favre, the Hall of Fame, a a quarterback um, for the Green Bay Packers, who essentially says, you know, we we maybe didn't know that this was something that could affect us when we decided to play this game, when we were young, when we were subjected to all of these things. So the level of awareness and of care for the situation related to football in the United States has definitely changed. Um, I just don't see the same type of movement in Canada when it comes to hockey. So, Uh, it still remains to be seen. Interesting. So when you do these surveys, and it's a national survey, and uh, it's impactful, you have interesting results. Do you share your results with the NHL? Um, Not directly. You know, I think they will probably be um, something that they've seen. Um, One that I conducted a few years ago when I was uh, working for the Rick Hansen Institute, um, they commented on it. They were very concerned about the, the, the findings. It was similar to this, but ultimately looking at the younger population. How can we make the game safer for younger people? Mm-hmm. And, and at the time, it was 
certainly controversial. Uh, Don Cherry went on television and criticized this, and, and we had a lot of people on social media who, who were questioning why we were doing this and if we were hurting the game, and uh, it descended into what happens in social media, which is name-calling. Uh, but it's not something that I, uh, you know, worried about. Uh, it, uh, we thought it was an important issue to ask about. Yeah. Um, particularly because of where the game is going. You know, we've seen a lot of things happening related to the safety of sports. Yes. Uh, part of it has been related to COVID. We've seen all of those discussions about vaccines. But every single sport is doing something to be better. And we thought it was an opportunity to ask Canadians about the national sport. Are you happy with what has been done? And the, re- the, the answer when it comes to the NHL, is yes, uh, but there's definitely an appetite for more action to keep the game safer, not only for those who are getting paid to pay it, uh, but also for those who are young and often are starting to try it. The survey results published under the headline, Canadians and hockey fans agree on banning headshots, is available at Mario's excellent website, researchco.ca. And just before I let you go, Mr. Pollmeister, I have a poll <laughs> question of my own that's up on the, on the buzz lines this morning. Did Australia get it right, Mario? Should Djokovic have been deported? <laughs> well, uh, on a on a personal level, I would say yes. I, I think it's definitely something uh, that had to be done. I think it took a long time and it was very complicated. Um, but again, you know, this is the way in which federations operate. Mm-hmm. I think there's there was a way for them to realize that they were probably well when it came to the guidelines of the authorities of the territory where the uh, actual tournament was happening. But at the same time, they were in violation of, of the federal rules. And, and, you know, we are a federation as well. We know that you can't be in violation of the federal rules, even if the government provincially says that you did the right thing. So I don't think they had an option after all of this happened. And ultimately, uh, there is a customs declaration where there are a bunch of lies. Mm. So this is the only outcome that, that could have happened. Interesting stuff. I appreciate your, uh, your jumping in on that one with such, such willingness as well. Mario, thanks for this. Always a pleasure, sir. My pleasure, anytime. This past Wednesday, B.C. Jobs and Economic Recovery Minister Ravi Kalan held a news conference to say that applications are now open for the COVID-19 Closure Relief Grant. This program was announced in December, just a few days after that provincial health order shut down gyms, fitness centers, nightclubs, and bars. Here to talk more about it is the minister, Ravi Kalan, joining us uh, from uh, Victoria, I assume. Minister, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you with us this morning. Where do we find you today? I, I'm in North Delta this morning. Oh, okay. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I saw the fog that you were talking about. Oh, there's no... You, you can't miss that this morning. It's pretty dense everywhere. Let's talk a little it bit is. about the uh, the COVID-19 Closure Relief Grant. Can you give us some of the specifics? Because, of course, it varies a great deal on the staff size and uh, sort of the cash flow level of the business as to how much grant money you might be eligible for. Can you flesh this out for us a little bit, please? Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, Sterling, you know, it's, it's been a challenging time for uh, some of the businesses that have been uh, impacted by uh, the closures that were announced by the Provincial Health Office. Uh, so bars, nightclubs, uh, fitness studios, gyms, uh, businesses that were uh, shut down by health orders mm-hmm. are picked up by this grant. So businesses can apply. Uh, the grant's open. Uh, it's anywhere from $1,000 to $10,000, depending on your business. So if you have let's say five employees, it's up to $5,000. And of course, this program uh, is complementary to the federal one. 
because ours is non-repayable grants, so they can use the money for anything. And the federal government has also offered up to 75% of wages as well as 75% of rent subsidy um, for the businesses that have been shut down as well. So the two programs go together. Ah, so there, there are no specific uh, strings attached to the provincial side of the funding, Minister, because uh, it is a grant and therefore an eligible recipient can do with the funds as they wish. Yeah, we, we've heard from businesses that uh, their needs vary. And, uh, and you'll remember, Charlie, this program, we ran it when uh, we had more businesses shut down. Yeah. We had restaurants, we had retail operations. So we didn't want to put flexibility in because every type of business operation has their own challenge. So we're leaving it to the business to decide what their need is. And, of course, the federal programs have more uh, restricted uh, uses yes. for them. Still very important, but ours offsets uh, theirs. Some grousing coming from the fitness and hospitality industries, uh, basically in the wake of this announcement, saying essentially the support is coming too late and the only counter you can have to that, I assume, Minister, is, well, we'll get the dollars out there as quickly as possible. What's the story on that? Well, the the program was, uh, the uh, restrictions were announced, uh, you know, during Christmas. Uh, a lot of our senior staff were back and working on this program all the way through the holidays. But, of course, you need to hire staff on. You need to bring people in from other ministries. And that takes a little bit of time. And, you know, we announced the amount for businesses within 40 hours. So the businesses knew how much they were going to get right. right away so they could plan. And then the program scaled up this last week. And if you look at history of programming, uh, having a program up in two and a half weeks I don't think that ever happens. So we are moving at record pace. And, uh, and of course, we want to fast track this money to businesses as fast as possible. Can you kind of re- re- just review the, again, there's, there's a, a margin, the, the minimum amount being $1,000. The maximum of available funding under the grant is $10,000. And you have to hit certain markers along the way between those two numbers to qualify at your level. So what are the criteria? Well, I mean, if you have, uh, you know, if you're a sole proprietor, you don't have any um, employees, then you, you go up to $1,000. Okay. If you have up to, let's say, five employees, then you're all the way up to 5000 And, of course, if you have more than 100 employees, uh, you get up to 10000 And, you know, sometimes you, you hear from businesses saying, well, how many of them are there? It depends on how you structure your, your taxes because there's some businesses that have multiple locations, but they file them under one business. And so they get captured by the larger amount, and there are businesses that are impacted uh, there. So we tried to make it very broad from everything that you have no employees to that you have lots of employees so that it covers as many businesses as possible. Well, I assume that a lot of the business, in fact, probably most of the businesses eligible to receive these grants are keenly aware of these details. But could you take a second and just identify for those who may not have all the information and are definitely in line to qualify for one of these grants, where do they go? Where do they start to uh, sign up, if you will? Well, they can go to uh, gov.bc.ca slash businessrelief, and that's where you can register. Of course, you can Google Business Relief, BC Business Relief, and it'll pop up at the top. Okay. If you have more questions, because a lot of times uh, our program is fairly easy because it's very basic information, you know, your business, proof of your business operating and how many employees you have. It takes less than two minutes to apply. Uh, but there's some other programs they may want to access uh, and, you know, it's hard sometimes to navigate during these times. So they can also go to Small Business BC uh, and either they can call or go to the site and all the information of all the programs available is there for them.
A curiosity question here for you. Dr. Henry and her update on Friday afternoon, Minister, talked about the current regulations, the one that we're talking about right now, being in effect until this coming Tuesday, January 18th. Dr. Henry and Mr. Dix will join us again on Tuesday to update us on whether those uh, those restrictions will remain in place or whether they will be rescinded. Should they be uh, extended till at least the end of the month, would the grant period also be extended in terms of eligibility yeah for sure and we've we've made that commitment i mean we've provided the highest per capita supports for people and businesses through this pandemic to support people through this pandemic and uh we're of course we're going to be there if for some reason those things get extended uh we're going to be there to support people and the businesses impacted uh, the, your, the full title of your ministry is Jobs and Economic Recovery, and my goodness, uh, you talk about a challenge facing any economy, ours and the rest of Canada. What do you see as our prospects as we round the corner in 22, certainly not out of the woods with respect to COVID-19 by any stretch, but the vaccine rate is extremely high here in British Columbia, perhaps the highest in the country, which would suggest a population ready to get going again. What do you see as the economic recovery priorities this year? Well, BC has seen the least amount of disruption on the economy from any of the provinces. In fact, we're the only province that has got more employment now than we did prior to the pandemic, which is quite remarkable. And it shows you the resilience of our population and our and our economy. And so I, I foresee that we're going to continue to lead the country. Uh, I, I think that we're going to have more jobs than people. We keep seeing people moving from other provinces. We have the highest in migration from people from other provinces in the entire country. In fact, the most we've seen in over 30 years. So all the the signals are uh, very positive for our economy. We just need to navigate this challenge ahead of us. And I do feel very hopeful for the future. Interesting you would point to that in migration number. Typically in uh, British Columbia, here in Metro Vancouver anyway, we take in thirty to 35,000 people per year from regardless of point of origin, either from Canada or internationally. That number was at least 50,000 this time around. A significant bump. A significant bump. And what we're seeing is, of course, uh, immigration has slowed a little bit because of you know the challenge of the pandemic. Sure. But what we're seeing is, High, high numbers from other provinces moving here, people moving from Alberta, people moving from Ontario and Quebec. Um, and we haven't seen that type of number within Canada, the migration within Canada uh, in over 30 years. And, and certainly when we see immigration numbers pick up, we're going to see those numbers. But again, we have a challenge coming ahead of us, which is we have we're going to have more jobs than than the people to fill them. And so we have to uh, provide skills training opportunity. We're going to have to increase uh, opportunities with childcare so more people can get back in the workforce. And of course, we're going to need some immigration as well. Interesting. And of course, we're going to need a, p- a place to live for all those people coming in. Uh, your colleague David Eby talking about perhaps some legislation this fall to accelerate the uh, housing construction process. Ravi Callan, thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, we appreciate your time. Sterling, thank you for having me and stay safe. You too. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.